It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Welcome to Texting, where we consider issues relevant to Jewish life through the lens of classical and modern Torah texts. I'm your host, Alana Steinhain. Texting is generously sponsored by the Walder Charitable Fund and Micah Philanthropies. This episode is also sponsored by Erica Schachter-Schwartz. Jews around the world have experienced a combination of loss and uncertainty since October 7th. The massacre that day and the war that followed has and continues to shatter lives, but it also shattered certain assumptions about Israel and about Jewish life and belonging around the world. Personally, I am really feeling this viscerally, and I've invited a teacher of mine, Dr. Christine Hayes, to join me to study a piece of Talmud that's a window into what many of us are experiencing right now. Christine is a Yale University professor emerita of rabbinics and a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. For years, she has taught rabbis, Jewish lay leaders, and her Talmudic scholarship has shaped and will continue to shape the field of Jewish studies for generations to come. Welcome, Chris. I'm so glad that you joined me today. Thanks so much for the invitation. Before we dig into the text, I want to talk about your sense of loss and uncertainty during this time. As a person who spent your life teaching Jewish texts, who has deep relationships to Israel and to the Jewish people, can you share with us what you've been experiencing? There are just many, many personal connections and hearing and holding the the fear and and the terror and the pain and the grief of so many people that I know and love has just been a very big part of my life. Yeah, I I have to say, you know, I I sit very close to a university campus Mm -hmm. where I was as a student, Columbia, as an undergrad and as a grad student, and where my spouse is currently the rabbi. And there's a deep sense of loss that I'm feeling there too. Yeah, I think that's that's true. It's been an interesting time um, that has opened a window onto some things that perhaps we'd prefer not to see. <laughs> I think that at Yale, um, and I am retired technically this year, I don't have to be on campus much, but actually the events... Um, of October brought me back to campus, wanting to show up and just be present. Pretty remarkable. I mean, for anyone who knows you, Chris, I think I could have predicted that you'd be busier once you're retired (laughs) than when you worked. So I want to learn some Torah with you today. You know, after October 7th, I, I just couldn't open a Talmud for weeks, except when I was preparing for teaching. My Torah study is so inextricably linked with a desire to relate to the divine in some way, and it it shapes my whole life. And October 7th just, it it made me feel, I think the word is rejected from a theological standpoint. So I just, I couldn't immerse myself in learning while the world and my people was going up in flames. 
But then I was taking a flight and I brought a Gemara, I brought a Talmud with me on the plane. I figured, you know, no internet, no news, I won't be distracted. So I opened Tractate Chagiga, which starts with a conversation about pilgrimage to Jerusalem on three major festivals. And it felt really inviting. It, it, was a, it was a message of you're not rejected. Come to Jerusalem, come to the temple three times a year. God wants to see you. And it was a real bomb. It was like a promise. And then I got to page 4B. And it just tells the story of rabbis who cry when they realize that they're living in a time when the temple has been destroyed and they're no longer invited to come on pilgrimage. It just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, the rabbis were crying on the page. I was crying in my seat. And um, that's the Torah that I want to learn with you. Yeah. I, I know you know that feeling of kind of the emotions of the text because they were written and given and discussed with emotion and, they, and it's palpable. So it goes like this. Babylonian Talmud Chagiga 4b. When Rav Huna reached the biblical verse inviting Jews to appear before God on a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year for major holidays, he cried. He said, a servant whose master expects to see him, shall that servant be kept at a distance from him? And then Rav Huna quoted a verse about God keeping the Jewish people at a distance, not wanting the Jews to come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's from Isaiah. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, tramplers of my courts? <laughs> and another, Rav Huna reached a different verse, this time describing how the children of Israel would eventually cross the Jordan River and offer sacrifices. The verses, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall eat there. And of course, Rav Huna cried, thinking about this. He said, a servant whose master expects to eat at his table, shall that servant be kept at a distance from the master? And then Rav Huna quotes a verse about keeping the Jewish people at a distance. God not wanting the Jews to offer sacrifices. It's from that same section of Isaiah. It says, what need do I have for all your sacrifices, says the Lord. So let's just pause and start with that, the sense of rejection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when you were first describing it, you used the word anymore. And I think that's the point, is that mm -hmm. it's the change, it's the shock. We had a relationship. We had You invited us three times a year to come, not only to see you, but to be seen, right? And the rabbis play with that um, uh, aspect of the verse, the ambiguity in the verse. It's not just year A, um, but yera a, it's not just yera a to be seen, but year a to see God. There's this mutual seeing. They both recognize each other. There's full awareness and knowledge and familiarity with one another in these three visits per year. And so suddenly to arrive at this this verse in Isaiah, um, where God says, I, "I don't want you here. I, you're trampling my courts. Get away. I don't want your sacrifices." Right? And the the harshness of that contradiction when there was this assumption of of an intimacy. But it always raises the question for me, is it, is it linear? Are they saying it was this way and now it is no longer? Is this a cyclical thing? Is this what the relationship 
is like and what relationships in general are like, that they, we go through moments of intense uh, closeness and intimacy and moments of alienation and rejection. Well, it's so interesting because the way the, the way the Gemara, the Talmud puts it, is it's almost like Rav Huna is reading through the Bible, yeah. right? So because he knows the later books, he knows that God is going to say, don't appear before me. If God is going to say, I don't want your sacrifices, when he reads the verses in, you know, yeah. Deuteronomy, come, yeah. appear yeah. before me, yep. go, give those sacrifices, he says, but I, but I know how this ends. Yeah. But presumably, you're going to read and reread the Bible over and over again. So after you read the end where we're rejected, you're going to then read the beginning where we're invited back in. Right. It's, a, it's really um, very immersive, actually. So you almost wonder, what is what is the occasion for the tears? Is the occasion for the tears the loss, or is it the constant uncertainty? Which stage are we in? <laughs> and will one of them be final? Um, so it's it's not, it's not just a one time loss, but this sense of how, how do you how do you continue to to live in a situation with such back and forth and an uncertainty about the relationship? I'm also pretty taken with the fact that. He doesn't talk about spouses who love each other mm. being separated. Mm -hmm. He talks about, it seems to be that there's a servant who has a master who wants to see him, wants to eat at his table. Mm -hmm. And now it seems against any of the wishes of the servant, the servant's been pushed away. What do you make of that kind of more hierarchical, almost we might think less intimate right. kind of it, approach? It, it is interesting. I mean, but the the idea of being able to do personal personal service to someone is very much an idea of intimacy. I mean, you think mm -hmm. about rabbis and their disciples who serve them. L'shamish, you know, is always the word that's used, and it is a mark of of both mutual respect and admiration and affection and so on. And um, and you're right. Sometimes there is this the husband-wife metaphor that's used, but they choose throughout this sugya, actually, to use the master-servant or master-slave metaphor, um, which does, I think, reinforce the sense of helplessness. There really is no—this is being done to us, right? Yeah. There's—we're we, willing. We even thought we were favored. We even thought we were invited. Um, but we're just— cast off and rejected when we were offering service. We weren't even demanding anything of ourselves. I mean, at least you could say in a in a in a husband-wife relationship, each is sort of obligated in some way. But here, no obligation. Yeah. We were offering the service and and attendance and that's rejected. Yeah. And so. it's it's, you know, I want to look at a couple more of these sort of crying moments because I think they even push more into the uncertainty piece. The two with Rav Huna is a sense of just, he's sort of numb at this turnabout, this just shock and disbelief yeah. that tears come for many different reasons and they express many different emotions, as we'll see. So even though as we go through each time a rabbi's crying, there's some digging that has to be done to figure out what those tears are coming from. Yeah. Right. So let's say we're starting with shock. So I want to move to a little bit later on the same page, on the same folio. We turn from this sort of shock at the loss and maybe some uncertainty within that mm -hmm. to really digging in mm -hmm. on the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And here, we're just looking at destruction verses or verses suggested from within a destruction in some way of maybe how to emerge from it, maybe, right? So it goes like this. When Rabbi Ami 
reached a verse describing the destruction of Jerusalem from Lamentations that read the following, Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there may be hope. <laughs> so Rabbi cried. He said, all this, you're, you're going to put your mouth in the dust, you're going to bury your face in the ground, mourning and suffering, and only perhaps there may be hope. You're putting us all the way at the back, and perhaps, maybe? <laughs> and we've got another Rabbi Ami. When Rabbi Ami reached the verse, seek righteousness and seek humility, perhaps you will find shelter on the day of the Lord's anger. And of course he cries. He says, all this and only perhaps, I'm going to seek righteousness. I'm going to seek humility. I'm going to try to be good. And maybe, maybe it'll work out. I'm going to be the best that I can. And just maybe. And likewise, when Rabbi Asi reached this verse, the following, hate the evil, love good, establish justice in the gate, perhaps the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He cried all of this and only perhaps. We're going to be our best selves and still only perhaps. This is, it's, a, it's another level of despair in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, it is. And it is a harder question to answer. This is where the uncertainty comes in. What road do you even follow, right? If if it seems like the rules of the game are, are not only gone, but the game is somewhat rigged against you. You've told us what to do, and I'm prepared to do those things, but there's no guaranteed result beyond that. But on the other hand, I have to confess that, to me, that's what makes these passages so important and so valuable. Because perhaps we shouldn't need a guarantee of the results before we undertake something. I think, I think that's incredibly powerful. I remember, I remember somebody saying, we were talking about morality of war mm -hmm. and morality in war in specific. Mm -hmm. This was years ago. And somebody says, well, who cares what you do? The news is going to report it against you anyway. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Who cares what you do? What do you mean? For its own sake? Mm -hmm. I said, God cares what you do. You should care what you do. Mm -hmm. And this sense that these verses are pushing and saying, you must do these things. You must seek justice. You must be humble. You must do your best. And you must mourn. And even so, we don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know. There is something about saying you must carry on as a human being and as the mm -hmm. best human being you can be, right. even if we don't know how this ends. Right. No guaranteed results. And in fact, if you were to engage in moral living only because of a guarantee that there are always just desserts, then is it really moral living? Mm. Mm. Um, God just becomes a kind of moral automat um, or caspomat. What's the word I'm looking for? An yeah, ATM an machine, ATM. right? Just doling out. An you ATM. put in and he doles it out, right? And um, But it, it can't be for those reasons that we do what we do. And so it's really when one reaches that, that peak of feeling almost alone in the moral universe, that one feels completely the rightness 
of morality. I actually, I want to push us because we know, you know, anybody who's listening, we have different kinds of listeners here, right? We have some listeners who are sort of like, I've reached my quota. <laughs> and then we have some listeners who are going to go back to the Gemara. They're going to go back to the Talmud. They're going to look. So for those who are going to go back to the Talmud and look, and for those who are not, know that this conversation extends for pages. Yeah. For pages of yeah. crying. And we move from shock and mourning. We move layers, layers, layers. But I actually want to push us towards the end of the conversation. Yeah. The way that this section is going to end is going to tell us a lot about where the rabbis want us to go, where yeah. they want us to land. But I noticed something. The place where they land is in a conversation, and we'll get into it, and maybe, Chris, you'll read it for us, but we'll we'll get into it in a minute. They land on the word, the words, hester panim, God's face being hidden. Would you like to read the piece that picks up at the end of the page of Chagiga so, 5a and onto the page of Chagiga 5b? Okay. So first they're going to cite a very terrifying verse in many ways from Tvarim, from Deuteronomy 31. And it goes on, simply then my anger shall be kindled against him or them in that day and I will forsake them, I will leave them and I will hide my face. This is that same word, I will hide my face from them. And it goes on to say, and they shall be devoured. It's a terrifying verse in many ways. But Rav Bardala Bartaviumi said that Rav said, Kol she'eno behester panim eno mehem. Kol she'eno be vehayal echol eno mehem. Meaning, anyone who is not subject to hester panim, to God's hiding of his face, is not of them, is not from the Jewish people. And anyone who is not subject to that last phrase in the verse that they shall be devoured is not mayhem from them, is not from the Jewish people. Ay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> what are we doing here? Wait, is, yeah. this, is this supposed to comfort? Is this supposed to scare? What, what, what is so interesting? What is he doing it's, here? It's, sort of, it's, it's snatching victory from the jaws of defeat in some ways, right? The very thing that you might think is the proof of, of God's disconnect um, is actually proof of the relationship. Wild. Um, which is amazing because God himself already in Devarim made it clear there are going to be those times I'm going to be angry. We're going to be alienated. This relationship is going to have its ups and downs, but it doesn't mean there isn't a relationship. It doesn't mean there isn't still a them, a people, um, a covenant. So even in those times of, of fear and uncertainty and anger and despair, when you feel as if God has shut you away and is entirely absent, know actually that that is a part of the entire thing in the way that death is a part of life. Yesterday, there was a piece... I think it was in the New York Times. Um, just a short article by someone named Brad Stolberg. It just ran across this called Not Everything Has to Be Meaningful. I don't know if you had a chance to see it. I haven't seen it. But it was just a short reflection. Something you know terrible happened to him uh, six or seven years ago health-wise. It really kind of was just a terrible trauma. But he tried to make sense of it. 
you know, and to try to find meaning in it. And at one point, feeling that he should be able to grow from this, right? He should be. And at one point, I guess a therapist or someone said to him that not everything has to be meaningful. Why are you working so hard? Sometimes things can really suck. And. Just right. have to right. kind of live with that. Otherwise, you'll feel that you're not even good at feeling bad. You can't make meaning out of it. That's only going to make you feel worse. And sometimes we put pressure on ourselves to grow from every experience and suffering. And there are some things that are just too big for our hearts and minds to contain while they're happening. And maybe 5, 10, 15 years down the line, it can make some sort of narrative sense in your life. But I think sometimes we're just expected to hold the pain and get through to the other side. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. I'd love to look at the next line with you because it it I think it gives us someone else to hold the pain with us. Exactly. Yeah. Would you? So this is um, now the Gemara coming in and citing another verse for us. Um, this is a verse from Jeremiah thirteen. Um, so Yirmiyahu and it's Ve'im. This is uh, God speaking now, um, where God says, "If you do not heed me," and then this is such a great phrase. But mistarim tifke nafshi, mipne geva. Then my soul shall weep in secret for your pride. And Alana, notice again, in secret here is mistarim, that same root. Um, yep. of satar, this, this hester root um, of hiding, of secrets. We've been thinking, or at least the rabbis who have been interpreting these verses as how can God reject us? This is rejection, this alienation. He is so cruel to us and he's, he's harsh and, his, and, and unjust and it's all about me. And then all of a sudden we realize that this hiding of the face that God is doing is not just an arbitrary, cruel hiding of the face. He hasn't become this dispassionate, unfeeling overlord. His face is hidden because he's turned away to cry. It's just such a completely different image, and it reestablishes a connection. You're grieving to God? We're here grieving together? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I feel like I have to turn away for a minute. Uh, it's really something. Um, I think, you know, as we're learning this, two things are uh, becoming sort of our, our um, standing out in relief to me. Mm. One is the fact that there are many hostages who are bemisterim right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. There are many, many hostages who are in hidden places that we cannot find, that we do not know. And we do not know what powers of resilience, what emotions, what moments of even divine connection are there for them alongside the other terrible and chilling moments. And so just that term is very powerful to me. Mm. And the second thing is it feels like this passage, this whole sugya, this whole section has come full circle because we started with Rav Huna crying when he got to a verse that says, I want you to come three times a year and appear before me at the temple in Jerusalem. I want to see you. See you. I want you to be seen. And it ends with, there are moments 
where God is not going to be seen. And not only that, we want to hide. Perhaps there will be salvation in hiding, but know that God is still there crying over you, even if you can't see, even if you can't be seen. And it's incredibly powerful in this moment. It is. The sugya actually has a real movement to it, you know, so that it moves you from these feelings of shock and and anger and, and really terror and fear. Um, but then by suddenly showing that it doesn't stem from some necessarily arbitrary cruelty, but it still doesn't even make sense because yeah. God is crying too, right? So yeah. Understanding that every relationship has these moments of intense intimacy, seeing one another full in the face, you know, really recognizing and seeing one another, moments of searing alienation where you cannot see each other, you're hidden. And sometimes the only response is not to try to make sense of it, but to just weep and know actually that God is weeping too. Yeah. And then gather your strength for the next day. I can't remember where it is now. I think it's in the Little Prince, if I'm allowed to cite one of my other sacred texts. Um, but there is a line there about the the place of tears is the loneliest place that a person just is always entirely alone. And the most you can really do is wait on the other side for someone to emerge in time, if they will. But yeah, the place of tears, and as God, God Himself, He's bemisterim, right? When God, that's when God is bemisterim. If you think there's Hester Panim, the reason is God has to step aside and cry. It is the place where God has to be completely alone. Again, being alone doesn't mean that there's a complete dissolution of all connections. It is something that happens temporarily until someone can emerge and just trust again and just step back into. The movement of life again, but they have to step outside it sometimes. Yeah. And I guess I, I would end with this, and then I'm curious what you would want to say as your final thoughts here. I would end with the idea that when we started, it seemed like we didn't know the reaction on the other side. Okay, I'm kicked out. I'm kicked out and I feel terrible. I used to be invited to Jerusalem and now right. I'm not wanted. But by the end, the notion that someone, that God has compassion on you, that God recognizes, you know, as I was reading Martha Nussbaum's political emotions and thinking about this, that what does it take for compassion? Compassion requires not blaming you for what happened to you, Mm -hmm. taking seriously the severity of what happened to you, recognizing like your humanity, essentially. And that recognition itself is a form of validation. Right. It is. It's, it's a form of the see- seeing, right? Seeing is not yes. just seeing people in the festival during joy when you're showing up at the temple, and right? Seeing is also seeing people's brokenness. Um, and to me, that's, that's where, it's, where it's leading us towards the end. Um, and just as the year a year a right will see will be seen has a mutuality to it in those times of joy during the festival, what they're leading us to by giving us this portrait of God weeping alone is that there is also this mutuality in the brokenness yes. um, that 
which I think is a really powerful image as well. So tears can signal many things. And I'm not sure about God's tears at the end. They certainly give us explanations. I mean, they, they offer a number sure, of different sure. reasons. He's, he's crying because the pride of the Jewish people has been taken, has been given to the nations. He's, trying, he's crying because they've been taken hostage, actually, if we want to bring this back to this yeah. moment as well. That is one of the things that offered is that the Lord's flock has been carried away captive is one of the reasons. So that's kind of hard to read right now. But, um, but I got the feeling from the various explanations that the rabbis gave that their focus was a little bit less on compassion and on true empathy, that God also feels broken. It's the same feeling. Mm. And it's not— It's a mirror. It's not the, it's exactly. A mirror. Exactly. It's a mirror. Um, yeah. And so, so there really is a connection in that moment that we think of as being the place that is the loneliness, loneliest of all, the it's land beautiful. of tears, if you will, we right? But God is broken there too. Um, we start not with offering compassion. Crying. Yeah, not offering compassion, just offering companionship and complete and total empathy, which is all you can ever really hope for from someone when you are in that that broken place of yep. tears. We start with Ravuna crying. Yeah. We end with God crying. We start yeah. with being seen. We end with hiddenness. But we also end with being seen. But also being seen for with where we are seen. in that moment, even though it's not how you want to be seen. But I do think that that concept of a mirror is very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things we're trying to do in this podcast, actually, and one of the roles that Torah plays right now is in giving people a mirror mm-hmm. to what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, and maybe even a window <laughs> yeah. to where they want to go with it. Yeah. So I cannot yeah. thank you enough, Chris, for joining oh. us in this inaugural episode. Learning yeah. with you and from you is always uh, a privilege. I really. can say exactly the same thank thing. You. Thank you so much, Ilana. And to our listeners, thanks for being part of the conversation. We look forward to continuing it with you. Thanks for learning with us. And special thanks to my study partner this week, Christine Hayes. Texting is produced by Tessa Zitter and our executive producer, Maytal Friedman. M. Lewis Gordon is our senior producer and our intern is Tamar Marvin. This episode was mixed by Ben Acevedo at Bear Cave Audio with music provided by Luke Allen. You can now sponsor an episode of this show. Follow the link in the show notes or visit shellamhartman.org forward slash texting. We will of course acknowledge your gift on a future episode. We're always looking for ideas for what we should cover in future episodes. So if you have a topic you'd like to hear more about, or if you have comments about this episode, please write to us at texting at shellamhartman.org. For more ideas from the Shellam Hartman Institute about what's unfolding right now, sign up for our newsletter in the show notes and subscribe to this podcast everywhere podcasts are available. See you next time, and thanks for listening.